Well, good morning and welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you with us this morning. We're uh, going to get back to Romans next week. But this morning, we're going to take a, a week and we're going to do a little bit of an assessment and adjustment. And just in case you haven't realized that those two things have to go together. If you don't have an assessment, you don't know what needs to be adjusted. And if you're unwilling to make any changes in any adjustment, there's no need to do assessment. If you do an accurate assessment, it may highlight some things in which you need to make an adjustment, but they always go together. So we need to assess and then adjust. And that is normally a good way to start a year. I know we're not at the very beginning of the year, but it's still early enough when maybe we messed up already in 2019 and so, oh, time out. I didn't want to do that again. Well, let's do a little assessment and a little adjustment. Which brings to mind a phrase that I've been hearing more and more, and I heard these past couple of weeks, and so I'm going to share with you. Have you ever heard the phrase, killing it? Not in the context of hunting, you actually do kill it there, but in the context like this. Dude, you're really killing it. Boy, Justin and the band, they were really killing it this morning. We really hope Nick Foles kills it this afternoon. Uh, Boy, those shoes are killing it. Your hair is, nobody ever says that to me. Your hair is really killing it. Uh, it looks like it's already dead, I know. <laughs> I uh, was in Chicago a couple of weeks ago speaking and I was seated in the back row and there were a group of college students on one side and on the other side and right in the middle of the talk before me, the guy's up on the platform, give me one student leans over and says, boy, he's really killing it. And I thought, well, I want to kill it when I get up there and I wasn't quite sure what that was, but... I wanted to kill it and make sure it stayed dead and all that. And then I realized as I was growing up, we, we never killed it. Uh, maybe we wounded it slightly every once in a while. Well, what exactly does killing it mean? Well, in the context in which I've been using it, it means to do something really, really well. They're killing it. They're doing it really well. But notice, behind the killing it expression is an assessment. You have some idea in your mind what really, really well is, and in your measuring what you're doing according to the expectation, and if you're doing really, really well, well, you're killing it. So how do you know at the end of 2019 if we were killing it or not? Did we kill it or not? Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to try to kill it, not just today, but through the rest of the year. And in case you haven't realized this, the problem with killing it, it doesn't stay dead. You ever know? Like you got to kill it again tomorrow and kill it again the next day. Um, well, what are some things that we need to build into our lives? What adjustments do we need to make so at the end of the year we can say, boy, 2019 was a year in which we were really killing it. We as a church were killing it. We together were killing it. Well, that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. And here's how we're going to do it. I've been thinking about the Gospels lately. I'm kind of going through the Gospels. And I've been thinking particularly about John chapter 6. Now, John 6 contains a number of super familiar stories, very familiar accounts. In fact, I'll mention them to you, and you all know what they are. First of all, Jesus feeds 5,000, right? You heard of that story, right? Um, the second story is Jesus walks on water and calms the storm. You've heard of that story, right? The third story is actually a story in which Jesus makes the statement, I am the bread of life. Maybe a fewer number of you, but some of you know that statement. But here's the weird thing about John chapter 6. If you just read the, uh, the section headings, here's, here's John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus walks on water. 
Jesus is the bread of life. And the last section is, many disciples deserted him. How the heck do you get there from there? Like, what? I mean, if you just look at the headings, you would think the last section's at the, at the end of the wrong chapter. He feeds 5,000. He walks on water and calms the storm. He announces that he's the bread of life, and many disciples desert him. How do they go together? Well, that's what we're going to examine today. And we're going to ask ourselves where we fall in that assessment adjustment dynamic. So follow along as I read the first 15 verses. Uh, We'll pick up some other verses as we go. But just to get into the flavor and feel of what's going on in John 6, let's read about Jesus feeding the 5,000 to get us started. So here we go. Verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have all the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to each uh, to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten them. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now we see a weird response of the crowd to an incident. Uh, We're going to do the whole chapter, but let's uh, talk a little bit about the context. Just what's the setting? Two things color the whole chapter. Uh, One, maybe a little more than the others, but you have to keep these two things in mind concerning the setting. Number one, all of John 6 happens around the Sea of Galilee. Is there a little picture of the Sea of Galilee? Some of you may have been there to to northern Israel to kind of see that Sea of Galilee. Now, I I always kind of laugh when I read Sea of Galilee because it's actually a really, really tiny sea. The Sea of Galilee is only 64 square miles. As a frame of reference, Lake Superior is 33,000 square miles. One's a lake and one's a sea. It kind of seems like it should be the Lake of Galilee and the Sea Superior. Uh, We're not going to go back and change the name. I was reminded of the great lakes and being lakes and the sea being a sea because I was in Chicago and I walked along Michigan Avenue a number of days. You're kind of right along Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan is like 22,000 square miles. And depending on your view, you kind of think you're at Ocean City when you're walking along Lake Michigan. You think you're on the beach. There are piers going out with amusements on them. Well, the Sea of Galilee was much smaller than 64 square miles, kind of like, you know, a lake that you'd go to fish on, go hang out on, water ski on, a freshwater lake, and it's teeming with fish, right? 
The fishermen went there. They still fish there today. Jesus, many of Jesus' disciples fished on the lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. All of these events in John 6 happen around or on the Sea of Galilee. The second thing of the setting that you have to keep in mind is it was Passover time. It says in verse 4. Now some of you are thinking, why in the world would John waste our time by telling us it's Passover? Because Passover colors everything. Kind of like it's Christmas time. Now I know we're through that. I hate to bring it up again. But have any of you started shopping yet, by the way? Oh. <laughs> uh, well, Christmas colors everything. So if I were to say to you or somebody were to grab you in the atrium and say, hey, hey, next December 23rd, how about if we get together that evening and we'll go? You say, wait a minute, wait, I can't make any plans December 23rd. That's Christmas time. Christmas Eve, we have all this stuff. We have parties at work, Christmas Day. Too busy, I can't make any plans. It was Passover time and Passover colored everything. We know that Passover colors everything because even in the little story I read, they were in Passover mode, which means they were thinking about Moses and manna. Did you notice in the account and then in the follow-up accounts, when Jesus feeds the multitude, since it's Passover time, they're in Moses mode. And being in Moses mode, they're thinking about manna. And here's Jesus feeding all these people with a couple crumbs of food. Moses did that. Maybe Jesus will give us a lunch every day. After all, Moses did it for 40 years every day. Maybe we better hang out with Jesus. Moses is coloring everything because it's Passover. Not just that. Did you notice the last couple of verses I read? They wonder if Jesus is the prophet. Not a prophet. The prophet. The prophet was the one that Moses said, One day after me, there will come a prophet like me. Isaiah didn't cut it. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. None of them cut it. But they begin to say, wow, all of those guys never did something like this. Since they're in Moses mode and it's Passover time and they're thinking about manna, maybe Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Passover colors everything. Well, what are the stories then? Well, there are three stories. And again, we're not doing a detailed analysis of any one of them. I'll tell you the basic just of the story and then we'll make a couple points by way of an assessment and adjustment. Well, the first story is Jesus feeds. He feeds 5,000. Now, did you notice, if you were following along as I read on your phone or tablet or in the Bible, you notice that it says carefully, there were 5,000 men. That's another way of saying there were 5,000 family units. Um, It's sometimes, often, helpful to count individuals. On other occasions, it's helpful to count family units. So here at Calvary Church, we count individuals that do things, but we also count family units. And so here's how it works. If we have 2,500 show up on a Sunday morning, maybe we have 900 or 1,000 family units, which means we have about 5,000 cars show up trying to park here because everybody comes alone. Is that how numbers work? So like 5,000 family units, which if you extrapolate, suppose most of them had a spouse with them, maybe a kid or two, we are quickly to 15 or 20,000 without doing much um, weird math at all. So in your mind, picture a Phillies game. They don't sell out anymore, or they used to. Uh, Picture a Phillies game with like 15 or 20,000 people there. That's the picture. And we're talking a large group of people. 15 or 20,000 people at a Phillies game can snarl traffic on 95 and the Schuylkill and the Blue Brute all together, right? 
That's the size group that Jesus feeds. Oh, and he feeds them all with a little boy's lunch. Two little fishes and five loaves of bread. Now, they're not giant loaves, right, that, you know, came in on the baker truck. Uh, little biscuits they were. And we also know the kid was really poor because the bread was made from barley. That was the cheapest grain. And so if you were eating barley bread, you were really poor. Wealthy people, they were eating like sourdough and rye bread. Well, I don't know what they were eating, but they weren't eating barley bread. This little boy has a couple little rolls of barley and two little fish. Not a 150-pound grouper. Little sardine fish, that's what he's got. He's got two little fishes and five little biscuits and 15 or 20,000 people. That would be like standing at Citizens Bank Park looking at 15 or 20,000 people and you're going to feed them all with one hot dog. (laughs) Or maybe you invite Calvary Middle School, the whole group, over to your house this coming week and you have one slice of pizza. Yeah, you, you, you better look to move out. Or maybe you have a big group coming to your house tonight to watch the Eagles game and you're serving three French fries. That's what you have. That's what's going on. An incredible need, meager, infinitesimal resources. But Jesus takes those infinitesimal resources and he feeds everyone, 15 to 20,000 people, until they're stuffed and can't have another bite. They collect up the scraps and there are 12 basketfuls of scraps left, one basketful for each of the disciples. Wow. I uh, particularly like that story because Jesus doesn't really need the little boy's lunch, does he? I mean, did Jesus need the two little fish and five biscuits to feed the... No, no, no. Jesus could have just spoke and created Happy Meals or Chick-fil-A for everybody, right? It would have been like divinely delivered immediately. But he comes alongside a little poor kid who only has a few biscuits of barley and two little sardines. And he uses that kid's meager lunch to feed the multitude. He didn't need the kid's lunch. He used the kid's lunch. We just took the offering. Does God need your offering to do what he wants to do in this world? Does God need the deployment of your energy and your gifts and your talents and your attendance to do what he wants to do? No. In fact, the truth of the matter is, on our best days, we are more liabilities than assets to God. On our best days. But God is so loving and so compassionate, he comes alongside of us and says, yeah, what do you have? What time do you have? What money do you have? What kind of lunch do you have? What kind of talents do you have? What gifts do you have? I'm going to so energize those meager resources and multiply them so that thousands of people are going to be impacted. It's me energizing what you give to me. It's not you by yourself. And I could do it without you, but I want to do it with you. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, that's kind of the first story. The multitude of people gets fed with a little boy's lunch. Well, the second story is Jesus walks on the water. He walks. So let me read out the few verses that follow that, beginning in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into into a boat and set off across um, the lake for Capernaum on the other side. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. 
A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Another weird kind of story, right? So here's the picture. The disciples go out into the boat. I love how one of the other gospels writer, gospel writers says it. Jesus sent them out into the boat, into the, onto the lake, and he goes up to pray. I like that because it's almost as if Jesus knew the storm was coming, so you guys go, I'm staying here. Uh, and so they go out. Now, again, back to the Sea of Galilee. You have to know a little bit of the geography. Sea of Galilee, about eight miles across. How far out were they? Three and a half miles. They're right in the middle of the lake. It's not like they, they're 100 yards from shore. They can hurry up and turn around and get back. It's not like they're almost on the other. They are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And if they're going from where they were to Capernaum, they're right in the middle. And so it's not going back. That's no closer than going forward. They're like really stuck. And the waves are churning and the wind is blowing. And there are some fishermen in the group. And even the fishermen are afraid. So this must have been some squall. This must have been some storm. You know, we're not talking a little ripples and a little breeze blowing. I mean, this, this storm is raging and the disciples are afraid. And then Jesus shows up. Walking on the water. Now notice it does not say Jesus was slogging through the storm. It's not like, I'm trying to make it, guys. I'm... No, no, no. He's strolling through the storm, right? He's just walking out, no problem. And I love what John says and other gospel writers say. They never used the word terrified or frightened until Jesus showed up. They were afraid of the storm. They are frightened and terrified when Jesus showed up. Why is that? He's strolling through the storm on the water. I mean, this is not David Blaine walking on some kind of thing in the pool. I mean, he's, he's strolling through the storm on the top of the water, and he's not sinking, and they are terrified. And there's kind of an interesting thing. They are really, really glad he's there, aren't they? Because, you know, in a few minutes, he calms the storm, stops the wind, and, and the way the gospel writers tell it, it isn't that Jesus says, okay, and the winds begin to die down, and over the next hour it's calm. And the way, No, no, no. Immediately, they take Jesus into the boat, and the sea becomes a sheet of glass. Immediately. The wind stops immediately. And the disciples that had been with Jesus for a little while now, they say, uh, who is this guy? We just saw him feed all those people with little boys. But this, even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this guy? And there's kind of a paradoxical response that these disciples have. And it's rather common. But let me explain it to you. Here's the paradox. They're really glad Jesus is there. Don't be afraid. It is I. He says, I am. Fear not. They're glad he's there. The storm stops. But they're terrified he's there. That's the normal response people have when they catch a glimpse of who God is. I literally could give you lots of examples. Let me just mention a couple. Here's one. Isaiah chapter 6. Pretty familiar passage. Now Isaiah is a prophet. He's a preacher. Right? He makes his living speaking for God. So his tongue is kind of like anointed and, and holy. right? He kind of speaks for God. Well, one day he goes to church, 
And an amazing thing happens in church. He catches a vision of God. Who would have thought, right? In church, you see a vision. He sees a vision of God. And immediately, this preacher who speaks for God is kind of undone. And he says, wow, woe is me. And then he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Why did he say he's got a dirty mouth? He's a preacher. If anybody had a clean mouth in Israel, it would have been him. I mean, the guys at the bar, you know, the Navy guy, they have dirty mouths, not the preachers. He's, I have, here, what's he, here's what he's doing. In the presence of God, my best shot, my greatest gift, my top talent is putrid and will condemn me forever. My best is filthy. Well, what the heck is his worst then, right? I mean, that, there it is. Same response, right? He's kind of glad he sees God and, oh, God's with us. And then he's undone immediately. Oh, woe is me, I'm a man of the dirty mouth. Huh. Here's another one. In Luke chapter 5, Peter's fishing. And he fishes all night and, as usual, catches nothing, comes in. He's kind of cleaning the nets, washing them out to get ready for the next night's fishing. And Jesus shows up at the dock. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, a big crowd kind of coming. Hey, could you do me a favor? Would you let me use your boat? I'm not going to go anywhere. I'll be right here. You know, let me push off, you know, out of the dock a little bit, out of slip. We'll kind of tie it up. And that way I'll, I'll be able to speak to everybody and see everybody. And they can see me because I'm not kind of tucked away at the base. Of, yeah, 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 use the boat. So Jesus goes back, preaches a sermon. As they kind of pull him back in, Jesus says, hey, Peter, got an idea. Let's go fishing. And Peter's thinking, he doesn't say this, right? But he's thinking it. These preachers, they don't know anything, right? They, they've never worked for a living. What do they know? They, how do, they don't know how to fish. In his head, head, he's, you fish at night. Remember, they didn't fish with lures and lines. They fished with nets. And the nets could only sink so far. And so you would throw these nets onto the water, and the fish were at the top feeding because it was cool. The water was cool by there, and they'd kind of get the fish. During the day when it's real hot, the fish go deep. And so Peter says, you don't know how to fish. You fish at night when the fish are near the top. During the day, it's hot. They're down at the bottom. You know what? If you want to go fishing, I'll take you fishing. I'll show you what a moron you are. But they row out a little bit. She's, oh, here looks like a good spot, Peter. Peter, I guess Peter rolling his eyes, right? Okay. Throwing in that here. Throws it in. He's almost pulled overboard by the number of fish in the net. What does Peter say? He does not say, amazingly, he does not say, Jesus, would you like a job? I, I, I'd be thinking that, right? Jesus, if you come work for me, your name can go first on the sign. Jesus and Peter fishing, right? Your name, and we'll only have to fish like one or two days a week, right? You go out, you tell me where the fish are. I'll do all the manual labor. You just kind of tell me where they are. We'll throw in the nets, pull them in. One or two days a week, we'll, got it. we'll make a kill. We'll really kill it, Jesus. What does Peter say? Get out of my boat. Get away from me. For I'm a sinful man. Isn't that interesting? Do you see that paradox again? Attraction, but repulsion. Uh, here's one last one. The author of John's gospel catches a glimpse of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. 
Now, John is really, really old by now. Remember, he had lived with Jesus. He's in Jesus' small group of three. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. If anybody knew Jesus, John knew Jesus. And when you read John's gospel, you read these personal, intimate accounts because Jesus and John, they were buddies, right? But when John catches a glimpse of Jesus in Revelation 1, in just a fraction of his glory, John immediately falls to the ground and he's quivering like jello that got dropped from the table. And Jesus says, John, you don't have to be afraid. It's me. Now, why is that? Why is that paradoxical response the norm? Well, here's what the Bible would say. We are attracted to Jesus because we are made to live in community with him. We were designed in the image of God to live in relationship with God and Jesus is God. We sync up. And when you hear the stories of Jesus, when you hear about the feeding of the 5,000 and this calming of the storm and walking on the water, there's something inside of you that is attracted. You want that, right? But the second layer to the story is we're in rebellion against that God. We told him, heck with your plan. We've got a better plan and we're off trying to make it on our own. That's the problem. And so the second layer brings in the, the repulsion part. We're built for God's presence, but our sin condemns us if we're in his presence. There are the two pieces of the paradox. Every time human beings sense God's presence and holiness, they are attracted and repulsed at the same time. So the disciples, they're really glad Jesus, Jesus, we're so glad to see you. Get away from me. Funny how that works. Maybe that becomes a little bit of an assessment for us. Do you feel an attraction and at the same time a little bit of, oh, Jesus, I don't want to get too close. If you feel the paradox, that's kind of a good thing. That means you're accurately catching a glimpse of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So that's kind of the second story. Well, the third incident is actually something Jesus says. He walks and then he talks. And what he says is, I am the bread of life. Now, if you read the chapter all together, you understand um, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. The beginning of the chapter, he created miraculously the bread, right? So he's not just doing, he's not just saying this in a vacuum. It's all tied together in the chapter. And sometimes if you only read the Bible in little tiny bits, you miss some of the connections. So Jesus gives out all this bread that sustains life. And then toward the end of the chapter, he says, now, by the way, guys, I am the bread of life. That bread I gave you, that may sustain you for a little while, but you need to know I am the bread of life. And if you eat me, you will live forever and ever and ever. A quality, quantity of life you know nothing of. I'm the bread of life. Now, if you track through John's gospel, you realize that John uh, wraps his whole gospel around seven I am statements. You know, you read any introduction to John or any kind of study Bible at the beginning, it'll always tell you there are seven I am. So here are the seven I am's. You can find them anywhere. I'll, you, I'll tell them to you. First one, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the gate to the sheep pen. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You are the branches. John's whole gospel, it's almost as if John said, you know, I'm going to go back and I'm going I'm, I'm to take those seven things Jesus told us about himself. I'm the bread. I'm the light. I'm the resurrection. And they become the pillars or the outline points. And then he writes his gospel around those seven statements. 
The one I just read is the first one. I'm the bread of life. All right, so we looked at the stories a little bit. Let's uh, talk about the crowd. Let's talk about the crowd. It's kind of interesting to see how the crowd responds. Um, when you read how the crowd, you may immediately say, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, we probably would have done worse, would have done better, we don't know. But the crowd's response is very instructive. After Jesus feeds the multitude, the crowd wants to make Jesus king by force. Why? Do you think they say, oh, he is the coming king. We need to submit, bow before him, do his bidding, live in relationship to him, and whatever he calls us to do, that's what we need to do. Is that what they're thinking? Heck no. Here's what they're thinking. Kings have the responsibility to provide for their subjects, provide for their people. We just got a free meal. If Jesus is our king, part of his responsibility is to provide for us. We'll never have to work again. We'll follow Jesus and he'll give us stuff. We'll follow Jesus, he'll meet our needs. We need to make him king. King without the cross, king without the mission. Uh, Carlos last week talked about the first point in Haggai about agenda question. When they want to make Jesus king, whose agenda are they following? Jesus' agenda? Are they saying, we want to make you king because we want to live for your agenda? No. They're saying, Jesus, we believe if you're our king, you can fulfill our agenda. They've got it backwards. That's why I don't want to make him king. What does Jesus do? He'll have nothing to do with it. He sneaks away and goes up the mountain, away from the people that want to make him king. That's kind of weird, right? What's the response to the disciples in the boat? Well, they've got that paradoxical attraction, repulsion thing. But then their responses, and some from the crowd as well, when they get back on shore, the response is, Jesus, we're really feeling that, you know, we're, we're separate from you and like, you're really holy and you feed people and with only a little boy's lunch and you calm the sea and do all that. And so here's the question. What do we have to do? This is verse 28. What do we have to do? What work do we have to do in order to be right with you and be in sync with what you want? Wrong question, right? Wrong. Qu but isn't that the human question? They want to make Jesus king, but it's their agenda they want Jesus to fulfill. And then the second response is, Jesus, we understand there's this big distance, this big chasm between us and you. You, know, you just walked on water, calmed the storm, fed all these people. Giant distance between us. What do we have to do? What work do we have to do to close the gap? And you know what John tells them? Or Jesus tells them and John tells us? Nothing. The only work you have to do is to believe. It's not working, jumping through hoops. It's believing that makes the difference. It's not effort and merit and righteousness treadmills. It's believing and trusting and loving. That's the deal. Huh. Well, that really brings us to the statement then. So let's uh, take a few minutes to talk about this statement. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never, go th will never be thirsty. Now, I hate to do this. I, I try never to do this, or very, very rarely, but you have to do it here. In order to understand what Jesus is saying, you have to know a little Greek, all right? Sorry, but here's, here's how it works. 
Sometimes Greek has one word and we have a whole bunch of words in English. For example, the word bread. Greek has like one word. We in English have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of words for bread. We got cupcakes and cookies and donuts. They're all bread. In Greek, they have one bread. All that's bread. A lot of, a lot of bad bread in the bread, but if I say how that works, they have one word, we have a lot. But on other occasions, Greek has a few words and we have one. And here's one of those cases. Greek has a couple of words for life. And you've got to understand the difference in order to understand what Jesus is saying. One of the words for life in Greek is the word bios. Bios. I know you all tell me. What English word do we get from the Greek word bios? Biology. In fact, biology is nothing more than two Greek words put together. Ology is logos, word. Bios is life. What is biology? Words about life, the study of life. So when you're in 10th grade and you go into biology and you cut frogs open and stuff like that, you're, it, they're words, it's a study of life, physical life. In the early part of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the multitudes. He gives them bread, and the bread supplies bios. It gives them life. Hmm. But that's not what Jesus says when he says, I'm the bread. That's not the life. There's another word for uh, life in Greek, and that's the word zoe. Zoe. We don't use that for life. Weird parents name their kids zoe in our world. And the first time I ever heard it was the Bowies, that Zoe Bowie, they named the kid. Yeah, imagine going through school with that, right? Uh, so Zoe means life. And it's a, it is a cool name. You think about it, you know, life, right? I've given you life and I want you to experience life. The word Zoe does not mean biological life, though. It's not existence. It's ratcheted up quality, quantity, value of life. So remember the old uh, beer commercial? When the guy's sitting in the boat, feet up, got his uh, line in the water, and he says, it just doesn't get any better than this. That's Zoe. That's Zoe. Or when you're on vacation, it's freezing cold here, snow on the ground. You go to the islands, you walk out onto your balcony, and you look over the Caribbean Sea, and it's 85 degrees as God intended. And you stand there and say, now this is living. That's Zoe. It doesn't mean you were dead in the room. This is not weekend at Bernie's and you go out onto the thing and you wake up. No. It's a quality, quantity, value of life. This is living. This is what I'm built for. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, the bread I made gives you bios life. But you need to understand, I am Zoe life. I am the quality, value kind of life that you're longing for. It's only found in me. Now, some of Jesus' original followers tripped over the figures of speech, right? And they began to say things like this. What? Jesus is the bread of life? Does he want us to be cannibals? We have to, like, eat him? We have to, like, cook him, cut, cut him, and eat him? What? No, no, no. It's in the metaphors, Right? Physical bread gives biological life. Jesus gives quality, value, extra exponential life that God intended us that. That's what he's saying. But here's the problem. We try to find Zoe in all the wrong places, don't we? I'd be honest, we're among friends. Some of us try to find Zoe in real bread. 
right? You just eat and eat and eat, and you, and you think somehow, right, you're going to eat yourself right into Zoe. <laughs> That's not happening. You're going to eat yourself into a heart attack. That's what you're doing. Others say, no, 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 I can't eat my way to Zoe. I will exercise myself to Zoe. You'll die too, all right? It may be a little longer. You're going to die too. Oh, I'm going to find Zoe in a paycheck, in a career, in a resume, in my finances, in retirement. I'm going to find Zoe on vacation. I'm going to find, and Jesus keeps saying, no, 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 no. How's that all working for you? I am the bread that gives Zoe. Nothing else gives you the quality, quantity, value of life that you were built for and that only I can give. But we look for that in all the wrong places, don't we? That's the point of John chapter 6. It's all going to the statement in verse 35. Now do you understand the response that follows verse 35? When many of Jesus' followers say, heck with this. I got to go find Zoe somewhere else. I don't believe he's the Zoe. That takes us back to verse 28 and 29. It's not in what we do. It's what we're believing. Jesus says, I am the bread that gives you Zoe, the life you were built for. Where are you trying to find it? We could probably play with the metaphor a little more. Um, we don't have much time. I'll, I'll just do one thing. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, physical bread is still a metaphor for the substance of life. You know, this was before all those all-protein, no-carb diet. They're not biblical, right? Um, the all-carb diet. That's a diet I'm going on, right? All-carb diet. The bread of life, right? Um, so bread gives physical life. But suppose Jesus took the little boy's lunch, he kind of multiplies it, and they pass out those biscuits, right? So I got 20,000 biscuits get passed down, and everybody has a biscuit. Here's the really weird reality. All of those people would have continued to experience hunger pangs and they would have eventually died of starvation holding the biscuit in their hand. Because unless that loaf gets broken and digested, you will starve. What's Jesus saying? Guys, you wanted to make me king, but you don't understand between this Sea of Galilee and the end, I've got a cross to go to. Unless I am broken and you digest me by believing in me, you will live in hunger and starve forever. Bread has to be broken and digested. Jesus was broken and we need to believe and digest that. It's not good enough to come and hear the story. It's not good enough to say, that's really cool in John 6, how all that happens. You've got to personally digest it. And here's another weird thing about bread. You can't eat once and be set for life, can you? My guess is many of you had a great Thanksgiving dinner back in November. And I know a bunch of you had awesome Christmas dinners. Was that the last time you had to eat? You've all eaten since then, I can tell. You have to continually eat. Now that doesn't mean you continually come and experience Jesus' rescue, but it does mean we need to regularly trust and digest. And so when we're looking at this year and we're talking about assessment and adjustment, here's the question. Have you for the first time believed and trusted 
Jesus the bread of life that gives Zoe? And are you believing him? Are you digesting him? And if you've done that, how are you planning to regularly feed and digest this year? We hope Sunday mornings are a part of that. We hope you figure out some kind of Bible reading time that's part of that, some prayer time. Maybe it's getting together with friends, having coffee, small group, whatever it is. How are you going to be believing and tasting, experiencing and digesting? Because we often look for Zoe in all the wrong places. Jesus tells us, I am the bread of Zoe. It can be found nowhere but in me. So believe, trust, and digest. And here's what we need to think about as a church as we assess and adjust. Did you notice in this chapter? Jesus feeds bodies. People have physical and material needs. We meet physical needs of people. We tr- Jesus quieted the storm on the outside and on the inside. They're scared to death. We need to work to reduce the storms in people's lives on the outside and reduce the storms on the inside. That's why we have a counseling center. We have lots of groups where people can meet. But ultimately, life is found only in him. So we meet all kinds of felt needs. But in the background, we know the real need that only Jesus meets. That's where life is found. That's what we're about. And I hope that that's what we're about individually too. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for these crazy stories about a mob of people being fed with a little poor boy's lunch and about fishermen being scared of the storm but scared to death of the Savior. And Lord, would you somehow take your words I am the bread of life. And take them from our heads where we just think about them into our hearts and our lives where we live them out. Looking back on your life, broken for us, feeding on you regularly so that we're tasting life as you intended and sharing with others that life that you're calling them to as well. We pray in the name of Jesus, the bread of life.